I'm Rachel Grimm, and welcome to the podcast with all your mind. I'm here to help us understand the Bible with cultural and historical context, linguistic info, and other cool stuff. Enjoy. Hey guys, welcome back. This is Rachel, and this is with all your mind. And I'm a little distracted, so I hope you won't be by a crowd of birds, a flock of birds, a group of birds, outside my living room window, because that's where the bird feeder is, and it suddenly got very popular. And so if you hear weird sounds in the background, it's a bunch of birds outside my living room just having a feast, apparently. For some odd reason, they just decided right now was a great time to do that. So... Hey, (laughs) today we are talking about the canons, the different canons between all the different branches of Christianity. And we've taken a few episodes to talk about the history behind these different branches so that you know when we get to this point of talking about who has what kind of Bible, you know who we're talking about with these different groups. Now, if you've been with us since the beginning, you know that we spent three episodes four, five, and six of this season, just talking about the Protestant canon. So we already spent a lot of time talking about that. So we won't talk about it a ton in this one, but we will talk about it a bit. Um, So if you're really interested in just the Protestant canon, episodes four, five, and six of this season have a lot more information specifically about the Protestant canon and kind of the logic and philosophy behind why the Protestant canon is the way it is today. Okay, so we'll look a little bit more at the Protestant canon historically, and at the Catholic canon and the Orthodox canons, right? So just to review, what's a canon? What are we talking about? And when we say canon, we mean the word C-A-N-O-N, canon. It means a group of literature, a group of books that is considered holy or to be divinely inspired by a religion, that's the canon. In Jewish culture, the canon was partly determined by the holiness of the book. A determining factor of canon was, and this is a phrase that they would use, did the book defile the hands with holiness? Meaning, when you touch this book, was it kind of like oozing with holiness so that you really should like treat it extremely carefully Should you go wash your hands afterwards because you had holiness in your hands? So just that phrase, did it defile the hands with holiness, was a Jewish way to describe a a book that was so holy that it was a part of the canon. So we're going to start there. We're going to start with the Jewish canon because it's kind of a, a simpler story and because part of the Christian canon is based on the Jewish canon. So we'll, we'll start there. The Jewish canon is the Old Testament, the Protestant Old Testament, and it is called the Tanakh, the Jewish Holy Scriptures, and it is Genesis to Malachi, or as it is in the Jewish Bible, it is Genesis through Chronicles, and Chronicles was placed last because it was one of the last books to be written Malachi is the last prophetic book to be written, but Chronicles might have been written last, okay? Um, So there are three sections to the Tanakh, and Tanakh, if you remember, is an acronym for Torah, which is the 
instruction, the first five books of the Bible, also called the Pentateuch. <laughs> We're going to throw so many names at you. And then the N, Tanakh, is the Nevi'im, which is the prophets. And the Ch at the end is there the Kotvim, the writings. It's all the rest of it that doesn't fall into the category of instruction or history and prophecy. And you can kind of talk about the Jewish scriptures, the Jewish canon, as having kind of concentric circles of holiness, okay? Just hang with me because that sounds kind of weird. But think of it as at the very center of the Jewish scriptures, the peak or the center or the most important thing was the Torah, the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They gave the background, the historical setting, the law, the methods to deal with holiness and how to approach God and who God was and all of these different things. So at the very center of holiness, of holy writings, is the Torah, the first five books, because they're foundational books for teaching about law, history, structure of society, and religious practice. So if you're talking about what books are holy, you could say Torah is at the center, the most holy. And then the prophets are books that have messages from God through various people at important times in the nation of Israel's history. This would be like another ring that goes around that first ring of the Torah. It's like another ring, like a bullseye. You can think of it as a bullseye that at the very center is the Torah. The ring around it is the prophets. They considered prophecy, messages from God to be incredibly important. And that is the next holiest kind of book. Then there are writings, books like Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, or Esther. And these are other books that explain or give history or express cultural or religious values, or national sentiment. I say national sentiment because the book of Lamentations is a book of mourning. And so it's not expressing doctrine. It's not a prophecy from God, but it's kind of a national way to mourn the nation of Israel. So with, when you get into these writings, we're on our third ring around that bullseye or the second ring around the bullseye, if you want the bullseye to be a dot. Uh, don't, don't get too picky with this analogy. <laughs> so the writings are this third ring that are around the edge, that this is where things start to get a little fuzzy with Jewish canon, and where there was some debate about whether books should be included or not. And so the importance and holiness of the books gets a little bit less. So there are books at the periphery that were debated, for a long time, such as Esther. Esther was one of the books of the Jewish canon that was debated the most by Jewish rabbis as whether it was really considered part of canon or not. So just like in uh, Christian history and Christian canon, there's debate about which books should be included. That happened in Jewish history and Jewish canon as well. So moving on from Jewish canon, it's really easy then to explain modern Protestant Old Testament canon, because it's the same as Jewish canon. It's everything else that needs more information. All right. So that's how, that's a large chunk of how the Christian Protestant group made their canon. They just based it on the Jewish canon. Okay. So in the last episode, we talked about the different random parts of Christianity that you might not be as familiar with. 
and we got a short history of why we have Protestants. So I'm not going to go into the differences in beliefs between these groups, but now we can talk about three main branches of Christianity, and you should know what I'm talking about by now if you didn't already. There's the Protestants, the Catholic, and the Orthodox. The Protestants grew out of the Catholic Church in the 1500s, and they at first used a lot of Catholic tradition, but they wanted reform in practice and theology. The Catholic Church is what was the church during the Middle Ages, that's maybe the 500s through the 1300s or 1400s or so. That was the church in Europe for a very long time. And they have continued with a lot of their same structure and tradition since then. So the Catholics today are very similar to the Catholics of the 1000s or the 1500s. But they also had their own Reformation after the Protestant Reformation. And we'll talk a little bit more about that one later. Now the Orthodox, there's two kinds, remember, Oriental and Eastern Orthodox. Oriental Orthodox had a split from the Catholic Church in 451 AD, very early, and the Eastern Orthodox Church had a final split with Catholics in 1052 AD, so about 600 years later. And if you want to hear more about that, that's episode number eight. We have a lot of stuff in there. Now, we talked about the history of both types of orthodoxies in the last two episodes, but just to recap, The Eastern Orthodox is what you tend to think of as Russian or Greek Orthodox. It's in Greece, Turkey, Russia, Bulgaria, Serbia, and some other countries. Oriental Orthodox can be mostly thought of as Armenian and Northeast African, such as Coptics in Egypt and Ethiopian out of, yeah, Ethiopia. So what we're talking about today is the differences in the Bibles of these main groups and why. Why did they end up so different? Are they so different? Why did they make them different? All these different kinds of things. And I personally have always been fuzzy on the differences between the different canons. Like I was just vaguely aware that the Catholic Church often had the Bible broken apart into different books or, and it, and the Bible itself didn't seem to have quite as much of a presence in a Catholic's life, surely in the liturgy and at Mass, but not in everyday life. That was my impression, but I didn't know much else about it. And so I knew there was this thing called the Apocrypha, and I knew that that was a difference between the Catholic Bible and the Protestant Bible, but I didn't know was that the only difference? Were there other differences? And when I started to really look into this, I realized, wow, the Apocrypha is a big part of the difference between all the different canons. Now, some groups, some different branches of Christianity have very different canons. And so one of those is the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. And that has a couple of different names, by the way. So if you look up Ethiopian Orthodox Church online, you will see a word that you think, what is that? It's just Ethiopian Orthodox Church. And their Bible is kind of the outlier of the ones that we'll be talking about. It has a lot of books that aren't necessarily included in other canons, but we'll talk about that a little bit later. So the Apocrypha, what is the Apocrypha and why is it this dividing line between different canons? Well, Apocrypha is a Protestant term 
for this group of books. If you talk to a Catholic person, they might call this by a different name, deuterocanonical. It's a little bit more difficult. I stick with Apocrypha just because it's a little bit easier to say rather than deuterocanonical. <laughs> I, I'm going to probably end up mispronouncing both because I just do that. At least it's not apop, apop, see, apocalyptic. There, that's, that's the worst one for me. I mess it up every time. But Apocrypha and deuterocanonical, I'm going to add to the list as words most likely to be mispronounced. Okay, so in Catholic and Orthodox traditions, the Apocrypha or deuterocanonical books is a group of writings that some groups of Christianity accept as canon and others don't. So different Bibles will include none, some, or all of these books, depending on which branch of Christianity you're talking about, and even like within the Orthodox Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, which one? Because they have a different kind of structure than the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church is very, very strong on its belief system that there is one church, they have a standard set of doctrines and traditions, and this is how the Catholic Church does it top down. The Orthodox Church is very different. Each section or area, or what you call the see, or patriarchate, or it's just region under one patriarch, one leader, each patriarchate can make up its own standards and its own accepted practices so that the Orthodox in Russia and the Orthodox in Greece might have a different set of canonical books. And they're okay with that. They don't demand that each group has an identical set of books or identical traditions or practices, okay? So it just varies across the board. So you can't just say, hey, what's the Orthodox canon? It doesn't work like that, all right? We can talk about each branch of Orthodoxy. We can talk about the Catholic Bible, but even within the Protestant tradition, there's variations on what is in the canon. Like the Anglican Church and the Lutheran Church actually accept more than more, I don't know what you should call it, but say evangelical or Baptist or Presbyterian or Methodist churches would. Okay, so let's get into this. Oh, just circling the airport a little bit. Okay, in Protestant Christianity, we're going to start there because Protestant Christianity, almost across the board, has none of the Apocrypha as accepted canon. But you might be surprised that it used to. The original King James Bible, when it was first published in 1611, one of the most important English versions of the Bible ever made and considered super authoritative by many Protestants, including many, many conservative ones, originally had 80 books of the Bible. 80. Today, most Protestant Bibles have 66 books. And if you were to take a quiz of like fifth graders that have been in Sunday school for their whole life, they probably know that there are 66 books in the Bible, 39 Old Testament, 27 New Testament, and they might be able to list them for you. But if you talk to a sixth grader back in 1611, they would tell you there's 80 books of the Bible. That means that there were 14 apocryphal books. It wasn't until the 1700s, over a hundred years later, that the Apocrypha started to be taken out of the King James Bible. One of the reasons for that? To reduce the cost of printing the Bible. Huh. What do you know? 
But there were already also Protestant groups that did not want the Apocrypha in there. So it was decided that taking them out and making it an extra book to have the Apocrypha as a separate publication would appeal to these different Protestant groups to buy the King James Bible. And then whoever wanted to could buy the Apocrypha separately. All right, so depending on the Bible, the Apocrypha can be included as part of the Old Testament in its own section between the Old Testament and New Testament, and very rarely after the New Testament. So when you talk about the Apocrypha and what is it and where is it, it's not standard where it's even placed in the Bible. Sometimes it's in an appendix at the very end. Sometimes it's included in the Old Testament. And sometimes it's plopped in between the Old Testament and New Testament, but not a part of either. So let's talk about it. What, what are we talking about? What is the Apocrypha? Well, Apocrypha means hidden. And it was actually used as an insult to put down this group of books because they were seen as untrustworthy by Protestants after the Protestant Reformation. But... So let's talk about what they actually are. That's the name, Apocrypha, hidden, kind of like, uh, they're the hidden books. We don't even want to talk about them. Hide them away somewhere. So what are some books? You might have heard of some of these. The Wisdom of Solomon, Tobit, Judith, additions to the books of Esther and Daniel, meaning just extra sections to those books that are already in the Old Testament. And then other books like First and Second Maccabees, and the wisdom of Ben Sirach. Most of the books have unknown authors, which this is one reason why Protestants didn't want them as part of the canon. They felt that they couldn't trust them because they didn't know who wrote them. It's a decent concern when you don't know who wrote the book. However, many early church theologians and fathers saw them as either canon or at least, and this is an important distinction, but it's it's interesting. Many church thought fathers thought it important to either have them as canon or just really important to read them. Not necessarily as canon, but as really good literature that helped our understanding as Christians. Why? Because they gave information and context about intertestamental history. All right. <laughs> intertestamental history. What's that? Well, intertestamental, meaning between the testaments. Malachi was written about 400 years before Jesus, and then there was the New Testament books. What happened in that 400 years? Well, a lot. <laughs> a lot of things happened in that 400 years. That's when Greece came through as the world ruling empire and conquered like most of the Middle East. It's also when the Romans came in and conquered the Greek empire. So there were two empire changes in that time. There were some revolts by the Jews. There was 100 years of Jewish independence in that time. There was a high priest that wasn't a part of the high priesthood that came in. And a lot of people were really freaked out about that, that he was not a part of Aaron's line. And they were like, this is an apostate priest. This is scary. What is even going on? Um... You know, in Daniel, where they talk about the abomination of desolation that stands in the holy place, well, there was a possible or improbable 
fulfillment of that prophecy in that intertestamental period when, oh, this is horrible stuff. Anyway, um, but basically (laughs) prophecy was fulfilled. Uh, There were huge changes in political and religious environments, um, just all sorts of things. It was a super turbulent time, but we didn't know a whole ton about this time except through things like Josephus and Philo and other historical records not written by Jews, okay? So we had some idea of what was going on in this period, but the Apocrypha is books all written during this intertestamental period, which means it gives us a lot of background into the recent history behind the New Testament, right? If you talk about Uh, It doesn't matter about those 400 years. That's kind of like saying that for modern America, its whole history of being an independent nation is not important to understanding what's going on in modern America. I'm no historian, but I'm going to say that's probably not true, right? So if we want to know what Jesus was used to in his culture, you have to know what happened in his recent history of where he lived the cultural problems and influences in his culture. It's kind of important stuff. Another place where we find a lot of information about this time period is from the Dead Sea Scrolls. So the people that don't use the Apocrypha and don't use the Dead Sea Scrolls for information on the intertestamental period just don't have as many resources to understand that time period. But If you do use the Apocrypha, it ends up adding in a lot of context for this very important time period. So let's talk a little bit more about these books. What's in them? What's going on in them? Some of the genres of these books are really different. The Book of Tobit, which is one of the like more basic, stable books of the Apocrypha, one that people don't have a problem with too much, Tobit is and could be considered a romance and not a romance meaning a love story but a classical definition of romance meaning a romantic person goes on an adventure and is chivalrous and is trying to be honorable um, in all of his adventures don quixote is an example of romantic literature where there's a hero that goes on these kind of idealistic missions That's the book of Tobit. It's this guy uh, that does very honorable things at a time where he would be punished for doing these honorable things, but he does them anyway. And it goes on from there. So it's a longer story. I'm not going to summarize the whole thing. But that genre of romantic literature, it's not really represented anywhere else in the Bible, I don't think. I think Ruth might be the best other example of romantic literature, but it's not. It's historical. Some of the other books are historical, like the books of Maccabees. And some of the books are more like Proverbs, like the wisdom of Ben Sirach. So why weren't they included in the Jewish canon? It's a good question. It's a very good question. And they have some very good reasons why not. One, these books, the apocryphal books, all came after the last revelation of prophecy in the Old Testament. Jewish rabbis said that prophecy stopped with Malachi and they stopped accepting books into the canon or they became debatable after prophecy stopped. 
it was kind of okay to see prophecy continuing and therefore books continuing into the canon, kind of like prophecy and then expression about that prophecy or expression about the people or explanation about the historical setting of that prophecy was acceptable. But what they didn't do was accept books that didn't have prophecy at the same time. So they kind of went together. So once prophecy stopped, they started to think, I don't think this should be a part of our holy scriptures anymore. So books around the time of Malachi started to get debated. And then there was this trickle down effect where it was less and less considered to be canon the further away from Malachi it got. So all of these books were written after Malachi. So no matter what was written in them, they would have been debated with whether they should be in the canon or not. And it would have been against them to be in the canon. Some of these books might have been considered dangerous to be associated with them. The books of the Maccabees talk about the history of some of the Jewish revolts against the Greeks. Now, if you're kind of a colonized nation, a subjugated nation, and you have books in your holy scriptures that talk about revolt and revolution and liberation, and you have your captors, your um, imperial leaders looking over your shoulder, they're not going to look very kindly at liberation kind of literature. You know what I'm saying? So some Jews said we should not include books like Maccabees and other things that might seem to promote revolt when we are in this very tense political situation. So some of these books might have been seen as dangerous to promote since Jews were often in precarious and sometimes persecuted positions in society under other empires. So that's just a very pragmatic reason why not to include it in the canon. Now here's a fun one, and this one was really interesting to me. Esther. The additions to Esther. Esther was one of the most debated books in the Jewish canon. That means that it's considered canon, but it was one of those ones that was talked about the most of, uh, should we include it? Should we not include it? But it's an odd book because it has some Jewish history, including the origin of the festival of Purim. But it's odd because there aren't a lot of theological themes, no prophecy, no Torah instruction, and zero mention of God. Now that's the really odd one. There's no other book in the Jewish canon that has zero mention of God. His name is not anywhere. However, in the Apocrypha, there are five little sections that are additions to Esther. Two or three of them, depending on who you talk to, might actually be original to the book. The other ones are additions that someone wrote later, for sure. They very, they're very different. They kind of cut up the narrative and they don't match. The, they're just, they're additions. But there are two or three sections that might actually be original to the book. Two of those sections actually make really good sense to have in the book. There are prayers by Mordecai and Aster asking for help from God to give them courage, to help them overcome their enemies, etc. So very often in these tense situations, like in Daniel and Ezra and Nehemiah, there are long prayers to God included in the book. And two of these additions to Esther are these prayers. Now, why would these parts be taken out? And we're just assuming, you know, just to play around with this idea that they might have been original. If they were original, why would they have been taken out? 
their good parts, their prayers. They mention God. And part of it might be tradition, okay? And this is so interesting. I think this is just a fascinating theory. So it's a theory, but it's a pretty interesting one. Part of the Festival of Purim, a tradition with it, is that you get drunk. So obviously it's not a very holy or divinely inspired tradition, but it's a tradition nonetheless to get so drunk during Purim that you can't tell the difference between the phrases cursing Haman and blessing Mordecai. Okay, so that's just a tradition, but perhaps as a precaution that people didn't use God's name in vain, they took it out of the book entirely so that the book, the people, and the tradition would be safe from blasphemy. Because you can imagine, you read the story of Esther at Purim, and if you have a slightly drunk guy reading the story, or a drunk guy listening to the story, and they accidentally say, cursed be God. Oh, well then, you have a big problem then, don't you? And it's an accident, but uh, this tradition kind of leads to accidents. What do you do? Well, you could kind of put bumpers <laughs> around the tradition and make it so that you don't even mention God's name. Interesting theory, right? The book of Esther is an oddball. It doesn't have God's name. Why? I've heard lots of theories, including ones at women's conferences, and uh, some of them are like, um, maybe it's because even when you don't see God and God isn't obviously in a circumstance, we know he's working behind the scenes. Those are the kinds of theories I've heard before. I've never heard the theory that maybe it was taken out because as a part of the Jewish traditions surrounding the book, they wanted to safeguard the people and the book from blasphemy. Pretty interesting one. So, in all, 14 books in the Apocrypha. Most of the branches of Christianity around the world differ on their canons based on, yep, the Apocrypha. The Protestant canon is the most conservative and restricted. It doesn't have any Apocrypha. The Lutheran Church and the Anglican Church are pretty much our only exceptions to that. They include some of the books as part of their readings and their liturgy. I don't know if it's considered canon or not, or just a readings. But here's some interesting ideas. Martin Luther, who was the biggest figure of the Protestant Reformation, said, these books are good to read. They're just not canon. So Apocrypha was not considered bad. It was just considered not canon. So some reasons why the Protestants do not include the Apocrypha. Authorship. We talked about that one already. There's only one book out of the 14 that we know who the author is, and that's The Wisdom of Ben Sirach. His name is right in there, Ben Sirach. Um, doctrinal ideas. And I think we'll talk about this one. Well, let's go ahead. Okay, so there are some doctrinal ideas that the Catholic Church uses the Apocrypha as their basis for these doctrinal ideas, okay? Some of those ideas are purgatory and praying for the dead, okay? So now you might hear that, and okay, let's look at it from a Catholic perspective first. If you're Catholic and you hear that, you might think, oh, only in the Apocrypha? Hmm. Or you might think, oh, okay, whatever, that makes sense, it's canon, we can take doctrine from canon, it's fine. Now, if you're Protestant and you hear that, you might think, oh, that makes the Apocrypha bad because I don't believe in those things. 
And so if those things are in the Apocrypha, they must be bad. Now, that's not necessarily true either, because some of the ideas and how they're presented in the Apocrypha aren't trained to make the point that those things should happen. They talk about those things. They introduce those ideas. They're not necessarily promoting those ideas. Now, if you want to talk about other weird things, there's other weird things in other New Testament books that are not being promoted as doctrine, okay? So we have weird things in our Bible. It doesn't mean we're promoting those weird ideas. There's context, guys, okay? So there's authorship issues. There's doctrinal issues. And one of the big ones that I don't know what to do with, just throwing it out there, I don't know, are factual problems, One of the big problems with the Apocrypha is that there's just some factual errors in these books, and they are most often about history and geography, such as, um, I think it's in the book of Tobit that it says that this guy left this area, traveled west, and then sat down by the river Euphrates and kept on traveling, and then he got to the X place. The problem with that is that the river Euphrates would not be on its way from this place to that place. And there's lots of little errors in geography like that, where somebody is clearly writing a story and isn't familiar with the geography that he's trying to tell about in his story. So that's one of the factual problems. There's a couple other ones that have to do with dates of kingdoms and when people were alive and accidentally making them over 100 years old when that's not possible in the story, that kind of thing. And the last reason for the Protestants was that some early church fathers considered the canon closed with Malachi along with the Jewish canon, okay? So there's different hmm, philosophies that you can go with on why the Protestants closed the canon with Malachi. Um, But bottom line, The Protestants do not include the Apocrypha in with the canon, all right? So there is a varying range of attitudes towards the Apocrypha now. The Apocrypha, to me, as a Protestant, I always grew up Protestant, but was around Catholics a lot, is that I just wasn't sure what it was. Didn't know what what the Apocrypha was, knew it was a Catholic thing, but just didn't really know what it was and felt like it was some kind of slightly mysterious thing that I probably shouldn't look into and I don't I didn't know why though okay so let's talk about the Catholic canon the Catholic canon includes about 10 apocryphal books they call them the deuterocanonical books which means the second canon that means that they weren't always considered a part of the canon in the first part of the history of the Catholic Church they were always in the Catholic Bible or very often in the Catholic Bible but they might have been in an appendix at the end as a separate thing, as just good literature to read. For instance, Jerome, the translator of the Vulgate, he was the guy that translated uh, the Bible into Latin from Hebrew and Greek, so it was like the best translation of Latin, and the one that's used by the Catholic Church even up until today. He said specifically that the Apocrypha are not canon, but they're good to have together in with the Bible to be read regularly. So when he translated the Vulgate, he did not put them in as a part of the canon. He put them at the end as an appendix. And it wasn't until the Council of Trent in, I think it was 1532 or 1535, somewhere right around there, that the Catholic Church 
officially recognized the Apocrypha as canon and made it standard that you need to have the Apocrypha as a part of the Bible because it was canon. Before that, it was kind of just wishy-washy. It was was usually in the Bible, but not necessarily canon. Now, the Eastern Orthodox, now remember, there's not a regular standard Bible for Eastern Orthodox. There are Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, etc., etc., and they are not held to a common standard for the Apocrypha. So there's about 13 apocryphal books in the Eastern Orthodox. But some of those Bibles have books of the Apocrypha in an appendix at the end, not considered canon. So there's no complete agreement on canon in Eastern Orthodoxy, and they're okay with that. They don't require that. The Oriental Orthodox. This is the Orthodox that's in Northeastern Africa, like the Egyptian Coptic Church, and the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, and the Armenian Church, and a couple other places, uh, they have more books than any other branch of Christianity at 81 books. So that's a lot. And some books are Ethiopian versions of certain apocrypha, such as they have their own version of Maccabees that's called the Ethiopic Maccabees. And they have a couple of different versions of a couple of different books. So the reason behind this is that they base their version of that book on a manuscript that only they had. So we'll probably talk about manuscripts and how versions of the Bible are written in another episode, but the short story is you need as many manuscripts, early copies of the Bible as you can, and you compare them to see, oh, they didn't write it that way in this one. That was a mistake. So we're going to take the one that five of them use, and that one over there that's different, that was probably a mistake. So you want as many different manuscripts as possible to show you what is probably the accurate reading of a Bible. The Ethiopic church had some manuscripts that were Ethiopic, written in their language, that nobody else used, and that's what they based some of these apocryphal books on, so they can be slightly different than the books used by the Catholics and the other Orthodox churches. Both of the Eastern and Oriental Orthodox base their list of books on the Septuagint, which if you remember is the Greek copies, the Greek translations of the Old Testament, because some of the Septuagint versions that we have that are from later, from the 400s or so, have a lot of the Apocrypha in with them. So at some point when they're translating these books, the Old Testament, into Greek, they included the Apocrypha. Other Old Testament copies don't include the Apocrypha. What do you do with that? I don't know. (laughs) It's one of those questions that I'm not going to be able to answer for you. Uh, So I need a summary. So what's my summary? What did I learn? Well, that these books are just really interesting and give really good background information on the New Testament, and I'm really glad I read about them. If I had more patience and time, I would read all of them. But I think the one I would start with is either Maccabees, just because of historical context, history, or the wisdom of Ben Sirach. Because in the book I was reading about the Apocrypha, it talked a lot. The, the, the chapter about Ben Sirach was really long. And it was really interesting, though, because it was packed full of quotes from Ben Sirach that related to quotes 
out of the New Testament. And I really wanted to give you guys a picture of how tangibly, how clearly the New Testament writers used the wisdom of Ben Sirach as kind of um, a template for talking about Jesus and a template for talking about just all sorts of different ideas. So I'm going to give you a couple of different quotes and you can see how some of these ideas that we read about in the New Testament that we see as being kind of new in the New Testament weren't so new after all that the culture that Jesus and the New Testament authors lived in had these ideas in them and we're just unfamiliar outside of the New Testament because maybe we haven't read enough of the literature of the time. Okay, so one of these ideas was how Ben Sirach in Wisdom of Ben Sirach, and they have a chapter verse, Wisdom of Ben Sirach 15.7 is where he talks about the potter makes, quote unquote, out of the same clay, both the vessels that serve clean uses and those for contrary uses. Now he's talking about idolatry. So his context, the topic that he's talking about is completely different. But Paul talks about the same topic in Romans. And you're going to hear my books shuffling around because I have two books and a tablet in front of me. But in Romans 9.21, this is what Paul says, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? It's very, very similar, isn't it? It's not the same thing. He's not talking about the same ideas, but he's using the same metaphor clay in the hands of a potter. So that's one place where Ben Sirach has given an idea for Paul to use as a metaphor for a different topic. There's a couple of other places such as, you know, where Paul talks in Corinthians about an earthly tent. Ben Sirach talks about the same thing. Uh, The armor of God in Ephesians 6. There is a precursor to that in the Bible. Isaiah... 59 talks about the armor of God. But in Isaiah, it talks about just parts of the armor of God, the helmet and the breastplate. And you know, in Ephesians, it talks about, you know, head to toe, the whole armor of God, right? Wisdom of Ben Sirach also talks about the armor of God more than just those two things that were mentioned in Isaiah. So it's more of a complete picture like Ephesians is. So Paul isn't just completely taking that out of the blue. He has ideas from that, from Isaiah and from the wisdom of Ben Sirach. This book was just packed full of quotes, and I'm not going to do them all because there's just so many that we would be here for a while. But I've heard theologians say that New Testament authors assume that their readers have read other literature other than the Bible, and this includes what's in the Apocrypha. The book of Jude is pretty obscure, it's pretty tiny, but there's a couple of books that are mentioned in there. The Assumption of Moses and the book of Enoch. Those are not part of the Apocrypha, but they're other literature from the time of Jesus and before. And these books, the the writer of Jude assumes that his readers will know what he's talking about when he mentions these books and the topics in these books. So if you want extra relevant information on the historical and cultural context of the New Testament, look into the Apocrypha. If you're not there and you just need to know the Bible better first, that's fine too. But if you want more information, more relevant context, 
Maybe even just grab a copy of a book that gives you an introduction to the Apocrypha, just to get a general idea beyond what I've talked about here. So what's my final take? Well, it seems like the Apocrypha has gotten a pretty bad rap in the Protestant church for a few different reasons. And that's not helpful for Protestant-Catholic relationships. Do I think it's canon? Do I think it's divinely inspired scripture? No, I don't, but I'm not going to judge anyone that thinks that it is. We should probably all rest assured that our theology breaks down somewhere, that we, none of us, have a perfect understanding of all of the doctrines of Christianity. You know what I'm saying? But that shouldn't lessen our faith in God or Jesus. Who God and Jesus are does not change with or without the Apocrypha. And so I'm not going to base my treatment of other people on their treatment of the Apocrypha. So we have, we have more important things to do, like caring for each other as fellow brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. I think that has a little bit higher priority than fighting with each other. So in a soon future episode, it's going to be in maybe January or February or so, I have a guest on the podcast, a Bible translator, and I asked him, when you work with Catholics, what do you do with the Apocrypha? And he's from a relatively conservative Bible translation, Protestant Bible translation organization. And he told me about a time he worked with a group that included Catholics. They were translating the Bible into a language for Catholics, Anglicans, and Baptists. They all wanted a translation of the Bible in their language. So what they did was that they made two versions of the Bible, one with the Apocrypha and one without it. He wasn't involved in the translation of the Apocrypha, but he didn't stand in the way of the inclusion of it with that other version. So we can choose to not agree and still choose to have fellowship and work with each other. All right, so I'm going to stop there. I hope you guys enjoyed. I hope you learned a lot. I know I really did. And I'm really glad I looked into this. So you guys have a great day and I'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.